The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 42. This is God's word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the, they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to them, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the mountain of olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing our study of Mark's gospel tonight, looking at the life of Jesus. And tonight we come to, I think, perhaps outside of the actual crucifixion of Jesus, the most pivotal event in his ministry. And it comes towards the end of our passage in this section where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane near the Mount of Olives. And we get an incredible and somewhat unique window, rare window, into the inner life of Jesus here. 
how he actually feels and what he's thinking. If you look in verse 33, he takes Peter and James and John, and Mark tells us that he was greatly distressed and troubled, and that he even said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. What I want to do tonight is to help us to see something that is central to the Christian message through Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that central fundamental teaching of Christianity is simply that God has sent his son into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Here we see Jesus in agony. And why is he in agony? He's in agony, yes, because he will suffer a gruesome death and die alone, naked on a cross outside the city. But even more than that, in this prayer, what we discover and what we see, the real sorrow and trouble of soul that he experiences here, even unto death, he says, is that he would be God-forsaken. That only Jesus could come and experience that. He's the only one who could come and do that so that you and I, if you trust in Jesus, would never be God-forsaken. So what I want to do tonight is look with you at this, the climax of this, these several verses from verse 12 all the way through to verse 42. And I want to use Jesus' prayer as the doorway through which we will walk to look at this passage. And I want us to see three things. I want us to see the context of prayer, the practice of prayer, and then the hope of prayer. So we'll look at the context, the practice, and the hope of it. First, let's just look at the context of this, this section where Jesus and his disciples, it's now uh, Passover has come. It's the first day of unleavened bread, which is also the, the first day of the day in which the, the Passover lamb is sacrificed, as Mark tells us in verse 12. And if we were to, to look in, in John's gospel, part of why the, the uh, verses here uh, introducing this, this section seems so uh, secretive is because the religious leaders have essentially said to Jesus, or to anybody in the city, if anybody sees Jesus, you are to hand him over. And according to Jewish custom and law, you had to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so Jesus beforehand has prepared, prepared uh, arrangements for him and his disciples to celebrate the Passover, and that's what they're doing. But the context for prayer here that we see, it begins in with the story of redemption. Earlier we read from Exodus chapter 12, which recounts God's establishment of this great feast. And the Passover, if, you, if you're not familiar with that story, it is the, it's the story of redemption in the Old Testament. Every, it is the paradigm for the rest of the story of the Old Testament of what God's salvation means that he would rescue his people from bondage, from oppression, from slavery. 
that he would prepare a way, he would make a way that they wouldn't suffer, but a lamb would suffer. And the blood of that lamb painted on their doorposts would be the covering, it would be the shield, it would be the protection from his judgment. And here, Jesus, we see in verse 22 to 25, after Jesus has sat down with his disciples and they're in the midst of this meal, Jesus does something amazing. He takes this Passover meal and completely redefines it and reinterprets it. And he says things like, this bread that I'm giving you, take it. It's my body broken for you. And then he takes a cup, the cup of wine. There are several cups, which we'll come back to towards the end. In the Passover meal, there were four cups. And he takes a cup and he says, this cup is my blood. What Jesus is doing here is he is saying, you know that story back from the Exodus that we're celebrating tonight? That story is really about me. And the covering of that lamb, that really pointed to me. That there is a greater salvation. There is a greater redemption. There is a greater deliverance that you need. And I'm here to give it to you. I'm giving you my very body. I'm giving you my very blood. And here is where we get the Lord's Supper from. In the context of prayer for Jesus begins with this great story of salvation that he is the absolute center of it. But not only is it this great story of redemption that Jesus weaves his life and ministry into this old and very important feast from long ago, but notice where it takes place. Sandwiched in between Jesus' A redefinition of this feast is first in verse 17 through 21, betrayal. Jesus, as he sits down, he says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. And you have to imagine this moment where Jesus says to them, one, one of you will betray me. And there are probably more people involved in this meal with Jesus than just the twelve. So he narrows the field a little bit and says, from one of the twelve, from one, the one who dips his bread in the cup with me. And you can imagine every one of them going around the room asking Jesus, is it me? Is it I? And Judas is in the room. Jesus, the context for prayer for Jesus happens right in between this great story of redemption, right in between his knowledge of the betrayal that is about to take place. But then also, notice in verse 26 to 31, Jesus tells his disciples, every one of you is going to forsake me. Every one of you will abandon me. You're going to leave me. And what I want you to notice here is Jesus understands what it means to selflessly give his life away for other people in the midst of staring a betrayer in the eyes 
and in the midst of looking at his disciples who have never yet figured out really who he is and telling them, you think you will stay with me and you won't. Jesus knows what it means to suffer, to be alone, to be betrayed, to be forsaken, to be abandoned. And that's the context out of which we then read about this prayer towards the end of this passage. But what I want you to notice here before we move on to the practice of prayer, Jesus is in absolute control. He's in control of all the details of the planning for this meal. He's in absolute control in the sense that he understands that even though he is going to be betrayed, he says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is not a surprise to him. And even then in verse 27, he says to all the disciples, he says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's from Zechariah where God speaking about his shepherd who will be struck and all of his people will be scattered. Jesus, however, traumatic and distressing and troubling all of this is, it is so only in the sense that Jesus understands all of it in light of God's word. In other words, Jesus' entire life and his destiny is shaped by scripture. And there's an important principle there. How can you navigate suffering and trial particularly of the kind that looks like and is betrayal or abandonment. Jesus shows you how. You have to begin now with Scripture shaping your very life and your destiny. But let's look at then, if that's how Jesus, he shows us that everything in this passage teaches us that to follow him does not mean stoic self-reliance. It does not mean indifference to the aches and the pains and the sorrows and the griefs that you experience. Rather, it means we need to take that distress to God in prayer, which is what he does. Let's look together in verses 33 to 36, where Jesus is now in Gethsemane after this meal with his disciples And I want to put something in front of you to to think about. There's no shortage of books you could go find that will tell you how to pray. Some of them are really good. Some of them will will leave you feeling worse than you did before you started. It just depends. But I do want to give you something to chew on. A central key to prayer is this, that a rich prayer life only can happen when you realize that you are not wise enough to know how your life should go. Let me say that again. I would venture to guess that for the vast majority of us who struggle to pray, or perhaps even if if you're here and you're listening in and this whole idea of Christianity and prayer just seems kind of like a waste of time, we're really not all that different. 
Because the, one of the greatest obstacles to prayer is admitting that you simply are not wise enough to know how your life should go. And if you want proof of that, you need only to ask yourself, you need only look for two things in your life. Look for pride and look for anxiety. Where you find pride and where you find anxiety, those will point to this problem. That you actually think you are wise enough to know how your life should go. And when that's the case, I guarantee you, you will not pray. But let's look at what Jesus does here. Jesus, on the other hand, and this is remarkable, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, the Son of God, both fully God and fully man, here teaches us that prayer involves at least four things. And I'll mention them and then just briefly walk through them. We need to to understand where Jesus begins, the beginning of prayer. We need to look at the foundation of prayer. We need to look at the help of prayer and then the obedience of prayer. So first, let's look at where Jesus begins. Look in verse 36. Jesus has told us uh, Peter and James and John to uh, remain a distance away and to watch. And he goes a little further in verse 35. He fell on the ground and he prayed. In verse 36, he said, Abba, Father. That's where all biblical prayer begins. And I, I might want to be a little bit more specific because there are a lot of people who, who may believe the Bible and think it has lots of great things to say and, and pray a lot. But all gospel prayer, which is really what the Bible is all about, begins where Jesus begins. Knowing God is your Father. In fact, G.I. Packer, who is a well-known, uh, long-standing writer on Christian things, in answer to the question, what is a Christian, he writes this, The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his Father. See, Jesus has come so that you might know God as your Father. Not just a God who is off out there in in the netherworld, far off and distant, but one who is intimate, one with whom you can be vulnerable, one with whom you begin to realize there is full and free access, one in whose presence you can know by the blood of Jesus, you are fully accepted no matter what you bring to him. So prayer begins with knowing God to be your father. But then, you know, what really is important is fathers are great most of the time. (laughs) And being able to go to a parent and confide in them is one of, the, one, one of the great gifts that children have when their parents are accessible and willing to be a source of um, help and recourse and confidence. But earthly parents are limited. And so there's only so much I can do as a dad. But notice what Jesus says about his father in coming to him He says, all things are possible for you. 
This is the foundation of prayer. It's not just that you would know God to be your father, but that you would know him to be the king. The one who is all-powerful. The one who makes all things out of nothing by the word of his power. The one who oversees it all. Who keeps your heart beating. Who gets you out of bed every day. Who provides for you food and clothing, friendship, community. Jesus understands that his father, all things are possible for him. And now what this also means is that if God doesn't do what we would like him to do, and he's your father, which also implies that he's good, according to the Bible, it doesn't mean that he can't do it. Jesus here is coming to his father with a request that he doesn't actually answer. Think about that for a moment. The son of God comes to his father and asks him to do something and his father says no. It's not because he's too powerful, he's not powerful enough to do it. It means that he must have a good reason not to. Even if we don't know what that reason might be. So the third ingredient here of prayer is the help of it. Jesus comes and says, Abba, Father. He begins there. And then he anchors all of his prayer in the confidence that his Father can do everything. That he is all powerful. That all things are possible for him according to his will. But then he makes his request. He says, remove this cup from me. What's Jesus asking? Jesus is asking his father essentially this, if there is another way, can we do that? Let me ask you, have you ever felt that way? Perhaps you're here tonight and you're in the midst of circumstances in your life and you're thinking to yourself, couldn't couldn't there be another way for this to fall out? Why this way? And if that's you, I draw comfort from Jesus here. Jesus knows what that's like to pray to God and say, let this cup pass from me. Can there not be another way? And yet have his father say, no, this is the only way because this is the way that I can be both just and loving at the very same time that I can rescue sinners from themselves, their guilt and their shame, and can make all things new. This is the only way this can happen. You see here, Jesus, he prays something that you and I don't ever have to pray. When he prays, let this cup pass from me. Here, Jesus borrows from imagery from the Old Testament prophets. This idea of the cup I don't think there's any mistake that Jesus previously in the passage offers a cup of blessing to his disciples. And here describes the cup that he must drink. It's a cup of God's judgment. And it means when one drinks it that it's meant to signify shame before other people and alienation from God. Jesus here shows us what it looks like to ask for help. But not only that, he helps us to see what do you do 
when you pour out your heart before God as your father and you have to leave it there. Jesus shows us the obedience of prayer. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. There is a great tension in this passage. Everything in Jesus longed to escape from this terrible experience he is about to walk through. And everything in Jesus, at the very same time, longed to obey his Father. Or another way to put it is, nowhere else do you see Jesus' humanity come through more clearly than right here. And nowhere else do you see his holiness come through than right here. Jesus pouring out his heart, his humanity, his struggles to do what he's been called to do. And at the very same time, he yields. He submits to his Father and says, not what I will, but your will be done. Now, while the events of Jesus' death and his resurrection, they're still to unfold in the story. In a sense, what you can say in light of this story is that the gift of salvation is one right here. Jesus, in this prayer, he shows us his commitment to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To obey God perfectly in our place, no matter what it costs. However, as we move on to the hope of prayer, if that's the practice of it, we have to begin with God as our Father. We need to remember the foundation of it, God's power and his wisdom. We need to see the help of it, where you can cry out for help, and the obedience of it. It's not enough to know how to pray. We also need to have a reason to do it, especially in the darkest hours that we face this side of heaven. And so where do we find the hope of prayer in this passage? Jesus gives us two reasons, two reasons. In fact, there are two promises, one a present promise and a future promise. Look in verse 28. This is in the section here where Jesus, after they have finished eating the Passover meal together and they're on their way out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them that they will all uh, fall away. But look in verse 28. He says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, that is an incredible statement that Jesus makes. But it, it, it comes across rather silent, right in between this incredibly indicting statement about the disciples in verse 27, and then the very loud uh, resistance from Peter in verse 29 when he says, even though they all fall away, I will not, which is fairly consistent with Peter. Uh, What I want you to see here, this promise that Jesus gives for the present comes to us as people who our great danger is that we will look to our own faithfulness rather than to his promises. See, the disciples here are insisting they're not going to leave Jesus. But what are, they, what are they failing to see? They are failing to see Jesus going before them. And this is the promise that Jesus makes to you and me. Jesus says to his disciples and through them to us, look to me. 
I have already cleared the path. And the writer of Hebrews actually picks this up in chapter 12 when he writes to Christians in the first century. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the promise he makes for you and me in the present? To follow Jesus simply means you're following his footsteps. That he has gone before you. That he will not call you to anything that he has not already walked. That he's not already endured. And that he will be with you through all of that. That's his present promise. But the future promise comes back in verse 25 during this meal with his disciples. Notice what he says. In verse 22, Mark walks us through this pivotal meal, this new meal where Jesus replaces the Passover with what we now call the Lord's Supper, where he took bread. And usually how this meal unfolded is it started with one cup of wine and passed it around and everybody would take a sip of it. And then the food would come in and it would, uh, the, the, the bread would be broken and it would be passed around one to each person. And then another cup of wine would get passed around. And as they ate towards uh, the end of the meal, a third cup would get passed around. And it's at that point, Jesus here takes this cup and he gives thanks and he gives it to them. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then he makes this future promise to us. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples and all those present is the meal that he started on that night, the night he was betrayed, it was an incomplete meal. Because in the Passover, there was a fourth cup of wine that concluded the meal that Jesus didn't drink. That cup remained on the table. Jesus left it there, not because he said, our fellowship is over, but he was promising them a future fellowship, a future meal that was yet to come. So Jesus makes this future promise. He says to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, in the same way, we here, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper week in and week out, it is, in a sense, an incomplete meal. Paul tells us this meal, it proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus here tells us what we are to look forward to, that there will be a day when he comes back and he will pass that last cup around to all of his people at the wedding supper of the Lamb where all those who trust in him will sit next to him at his table together and feast forever. And here's what this means for us, this promise of the present or the promise for the future. Do you have a hard time being patient with your own life right now, with the church, 
with our society, with other people. This future promise cultivates patience right now. And at the very same time, it cultivates a longing for what will be. See, the gospel is what enables you to live patiently right now while at the same time yearning for that great day when Jesus will make all things new. All of that is wrapped up in this prayer that we see Jesus pray and the context that surrounds it and how he shows us how to pray. And it even in the midst of giving us hope both in the present and in the future. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would work through this passage, and particularly that you'd help us to see that in Jesus and his going before us and his gift of this last meal and how it points to his body and his blood broken and shed for sinners, we pray that you would give us hope, that you would help us to pray, to follow after him to call out to you and help to our Father. Confessing that you are good, that you are all-powerful. And at the very same time, we ask for the grace to follow, to yield, to wait, to serve and to obey. Whatever that might mean. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. And therefore we know that because he has done that, that good work that you have begun in us, you will one day complete so that we will sit with him in perfect communion and fellowship around his table forever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.